What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi there, I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on Squawk Pod, a record-breaking Memorial Day weekend at the box office. It's like Wizard of Oz, The Godfather, Top Gun Maverick. AMC CEO Adam Aaron says, yep, moviegoers are back, and this time it might be for good. I actually think that when Paramount releases numbers today, they'll be higher than what you've seen in the press reports. This is two and a half times the biggest Tom Cruise movie opening ever. And the Biden administration considering a loan forgiveness plan that has both sides of the aisle underwhelmed. President of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels. This dead fish isn't smelling any better the older it gets. One reason this has taken so long for the administration to say something about it is they know it's fatally flawed. Those stories plus we're tracking what might have been a bull in a bear, market that is, and the oil issues that just keep coming. It's Tuesday, May 31st, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Brian Sullivan. Joe and Andrew are off today. Brian, it's good to see you. Good to be here. Good to be here too. Stocks are coming off their best week in more than two months. All three of the major averages jumping by more than 6% last week and ending losing streaks of seven and eight weeks. All those gains actually helping erase the major indices losses Uh, The big losses that we've seen in May for the most part. The Dow and the S&P are actually now in positive territory for the month, and this is the last trading day of the month today. They're there, but just barely. The Nasdaq is still down, but uh, only by about 1.5%. And again, if you would have said earlier in the month that this is where we'd be, you probably have a lot of people who would have signed up for that. But really, the story this morning is oil. Crude oil prices, they are higher right now. This after European Union leaders reached a deal late yesterday to ban about 90% of Russian crude oil by ship by the end of the year. A deal broke after a deadlock from Hungary initially held up talks. In fact, they granted the exemptions that Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic are still able to get Russian oil via pipeline. Now, EU officials, they in fact say that the sanctions will immediately hit about 75% of Russian oil imports, also likely driving up prices this morning, and that is the lifting of some COVID restrictions in China. I want to be clear what's happening with the EU and oil. Yeah. Basically, what they're saying is we're going to ban ship. Most oil comes in via super tanker. They're going to ban Russian oil from coming into the EU via ship. Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic said, because they don't have ports, so they have to get it all by pipeline, and they said we can't do it. So the deal basically says Russian oil can still come in to those three nations via pipeline. The rest of Europe will wean itself off the pipeline. But here's the thing, and the price of oil is up. It's probably more China opening than this that's moving oil because India has been buying up all the Russian crude they can. And there's no indication they're going to stop. So it's unlikely this will hit Russian sales of crude too much globally. It'll hit EU sales 
but I think India and probably China are going to pick up any slack. The EU has been spending something like $23 billion a month on Russian energy imports coming in with some of these things. If you say you're not going to take it, is it that easy to just reroute all of it? Since this is just the stuff coming in by tankers, they just send the tankers a different direction, go to India, go to China? Well, they buy, they buy tankers from different nations. Now, there's a lot of stuff. I don't want to go into the tanker weeds. You can say that how do we know that the Russian crew just doesn't go out on one ship, they transfer it to another ship. It's hard to track what, where the actual oil is sometimes. Iran plays this game pretty well. To get around the embargoes. To get around the embargoes, right? What's the act? Is it the ship or is it the oil? I think there's also, listen, in many ways, the EU kind of caved here. To Hungary? Well, no, they caved on natural gas. They didn't do anything on gas. And in fact, they actually opened they up. Because it's more painful to them on the natural gas. Correct. Part. And in fact, they eased some of the banking requirements on this Russian, Russia demanded to be paid in rubles. Right. Some eased on that. So actually, in many ways, you could view this as Russia, sort of European Union caving to Russia on the gas side. They're much more afraid of gas, natural gas, than they are of oil. Because natural gas means people freeze to death. They can't make food. They can't make plastics. They can't make renewables. Oil means transportation for the most part. Right, right. Another big story that we're watching this morning, if you haven't seen this already, President Biden's going to be meeting with Fed Chair Jay Powell at the White House today. Ahead of that meeting, the president outlined his plan to fight inflation in an opinion piece that was published in this morning's Wall Street Journal. The president says it's unlikely, or it is likely, that job growth could slow from a monthly pace of 500,000 jobs to around 150,000 jobs as a necessary result of the Fed's efforts to combat high inflation. He outlined a three-part plan, saying first, he agrees with the Fed re Fed's read on inflation, that it's too hot, and that he will not interfere with Fed policy. Second, he urged Congress to act on several of his pi policy priorities, including passing clean energy tax credits and investments, approving his plan to build more than a million housing units, and allowing Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies. Third, he reiterated his previous tax priorities, calling for more resources for the IRS to collect taxes that Americans already owe, calling for a tax code overhaul to charge billionaires higher rates, and calling for a leveling of the international taxation playing field. I think what's uh, notable here is there's nothing that's going to be a quick fix in this. Maybe the most important thing is that he's going to be backing the Fed's policies and says he won't interfere, as you've seen from previous administrations, when you're facing a difficult economy up against a, a, an election, too. Uh, yeah. But a lot of these other things are not going to fix anything in the short term. Yes, we need to fix the supply chain. You need to see additional infrastructure for that. None of this is getting fixed anytime soon. No, and in fact, let's not forget this one point. On June 30th, the Longshoremen's Union of Southern California, their contract expires. Right. If there's no new deal, it's possible L.A. and Long Beach ports go on strike. That's 40 percent of, of U.S. Intake. imports. Yeah. If, if there's no deal made there, if you thought supply chains were bad before, would you? That's 40 percent of do U.S. You, do you actually think that's going to happen? Because no, I can't no, imagine no. them allowing that to happen at this point. It, it, it's going to have to get resolved somehow if they actually go on strike with the existing infrastructure strains we've already seen. I'll take seen. you into the, 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 the nitty-gritty of TV a little bit. When I was out at the Milken Conference in California, I was going to do a story about the ports the next day because I was already there. Nobody really wanted to talk. So I felt like that, so I didn't do the story because I didn't have any voices. Right. I feel like that's a good sign because they're right. negotiating. They don't want me or TV button in. Right. 
Try and Muck, get it done. Mucking and things it up. up. Yes. I said mucking. Is that what you said? I said mucking things up. Not plucking. No. I just got a text from a guy, a friend of mine who's a big port executive, saying you probably won't see a settlement until later this summer, but they will not strike for the reasons you cite. <clears throat> Excellent. There you um, go. Yeah, if there and he's is a in a position. He's in a position it, to know. If there is a strike on top of it, I, I first of all, I can't allow. Imagine the administration allowing that to happen. I, there would be too much pressure from all sides to see that. I, yeah, whatever power, emergency war powers that whatever they might have, you can't shut down the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. But let's be clear, the longshoremen they have power right now, as they should. They busted their butts during COVID and did us all this stuff. They've got pricing power. We'll see what happens. Did you go see Top Gun Maverick? I didn't, but not because I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I guess we're the only people who didn't. Top Gun Maverick topping the holiday weekend box office kind of feels back to normal, right? Talking about this. It brought in $156 million in ticket sales in North America. That is a record for the holiday weekend and a career best debut for Tom Cruise. The movie was initially scheduled for release all the way back in 2019. It was postponed several times through 2020 and 2021 as theaters were closed. Paramount said that more than half of moviegoers watching Top Gun this weekend were over the age of 35. No surprise there, an older skewing audience. The other hits this year have drawn in the younger crowd. There were questions about whether older people would show up, whether they were really afraid of the theaters at this point because it's older people who are more likely to have bad outcomes from COVID if you get something like Define that. Define older. You, me. I'm not worried about it. I've had COVID <laughs> twice. I'm, I'm going to, I got a group once, of. Once, I've had once. I got 12 friends that are going to see Top Gun Thursday night. Going out to a, get some adult beverages, dinner, and then going to the theater. We were at the beach or I would have seen it this weekend. Yeah. But, um, but. Theaters are packed. If I owned a movie theater right now and I had eight screens, I'd make all eight or seven this movie and won some kids movie. Look, Paramount and Tom Cruise look really smart for holding this back, for not going ahead and releasing it on streaming as there was pressure to do during all of these things to say, wait, let's hold out. Let's see what happens with this. Apparently this movie's like 99% positive. On Rotten Tomatoes, yes. Adam Aaron, who we've on later on the show, was saying it was like the best movie he's ever seen. It's like Wizard of Oz, The Godfather, Top Gun Maverick. It's all combined. Who um, knows? Talk to me, Goose. We'll see. Next on Squawk Pod, more on the top records for Top Gun. AMC CEO Adam Aaron on the big comeback weekend for movies and how happy it's probably making all the AMC apes. When I read my Twitter feeds every day, this is a very enthusiastic, passionate, committed group of stockholders. We're honored that they're with us. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. 
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Becky Quick and Brian Sullivan. Here's Brian. It was, in many ways, literally a high-flying holiday weekend at the box office with numbers that bode very well for the rest of the summer. Julia Borston joining us now. Julia, just how big was Top Gun Maverick and just how rich is Tom Cruise right now? Tom Cruise will profit nicely from the success of Top Gun Maverick. The film soared past all expectations over this Memorial Day weekend. It grossed $127 million through Sunday and $156 million through yesterday, according to Paramount. Now, that is a record for Tom Cruise, also an overall record for Memorial Day weekend. The film grossed another $126 million internationally. So what that means is that the film is going to be a big financial win for Paramount, for Tom Cruise, as well as for producer David Ellison. And it's expected to continue this strong run in coming weeks, bolstered by a roughly 97% positive critic score and a 99% positive audience rating. That's incredibly high uh, for a movie like this. Now, here's why Top Gun's performance bodes so well for the theater chains. It's because a really diverse range of audiences came out in mass to theaters. About 55% of moviegoers were over age 35, and that's an audience that studios feared weren't going to come back to theaters after the pandemic in meaningful numbers. Plus, top-grossing theaters had a wide geographic spread across the country. So now the rest of the media giants are hopeful that getting audiences back into theaters and having them see trailers will help pack theaters for the upcoming big budget films this summer, including Universal's Jurassic World Dominion, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, and Disney Marvel's Thor Love and Thunder. So, Brian, certainly the hope that success begets success once people get back into the theaters. I'm already thinking about the what is a Top Gun Maverick 2? Tom Cruise will be 85 years old and, and flying, you know, rescue choppers. Julia, I, did anybody anticipate? Did anybody anticipate it was going to be this big? Well, look, I think this was in a lot of ways sort of a, a perfect combination of factors here. There's the nostalgia element. So the fact that you're getting older audiences who saw the first Top Gun in theaters and want to see this new one. And then also you have young actors in here, people like Miles Teller, who can help bring out um, younger audiences as well. So it really had everything that it takes for what they call a four quadrant tentpole movie. So that means people from all sorts of demographics. I mean, this the, the audience was fairly balanced in terms of men and women who came out to see it. So I think it was this perfect combination of factors. And what's so interesting with movies is that once people get back into theaters, if they like the movie as they did for this movie, and if they like the experience, they are are oftentimes more likely to come back because 
they saw movie trailers for what else is coming up. So the question now really, Brian, is whether inflation, all these macroeconomic factors that you've been talking about all morning, including the high price of gas, keep people home. They say, okay, I saw my big movie. Maybe I'll only go, go back once more this summer. Or if they say, hey, this was such a great experience. I'm going to keep on going back every couple of weeks. That's it. And they, re they remember, they were I, the first time you go back to the movie, you're, I took my son, like, I don't know, six months ago, the movies. I was like, this is cool. I totally forgot. Like, the chairs are comfy. They reclined a little bit. We had like seven tons of popcorn. Uh, you forget it's just a lot different at home. Julie Borston, thank you very much. Good stuff. For more on the Top Gun's record-breaking weekend at the office, let's bring in AMC CEO Adam Aaron. He's joining us first on Squawk Box. And Adam, all of these different metrics that we just ran through, all these superlatives, which is the metric that is most important to you? Well, good morning, Becky. And, you know, I'm actually not going to give you an interview now. I'm just going to say put Julia back on and let her talk more about what a historic weekend this was for the movie business. Uh, the most important thing for us is how many people are coming to our theaters. And in our case at AMC, we had 3.3 million people watch Top Gun over this Memorial Day holiday weekend. It is the biggest Memorial Day weekend movie of all time. I actually think that when Paramount releases numbers today, they'll be higher than what you've seen in the press reports. This is two and a half times the biggest Tom Cruise movie opening ever. Uh, we're just euphoric. You said that 3.3 million people. I know that's a huge increase over Memorial Day last year. Is that a record in terms of people? Because, you know, obviously ticket prices are up. People were paying for premium experiences here. If you're looking at just people coming through, where do we stand now versus pre-pandemic? Uh, it's a record for us for a single movie title. Um, uh, in total, we had about 5 million people in our theaters watching not only this movie, but the other 20 titles that are playing at AMC. And wait do you see what's coming, because this is just the first of many. Jurassic World Dominion opens in two weeks. Pixar's Lightyear is a week after that. And, oh, the summer is just a flood of great movie titles. Uh, Thor and Minions. Uh, there's an Elvis biopic starring Tom Hanks, which from Baz Luhrmann, uh, who did, direct, who did uh, Moulin Rouge way back when. Uh, it's going to be a big, big summer, in our opinion. And then it just continues all the way to Christmas. Avatar 2 is coming in December. You know, Avatar was the biggest movie of all time back when it was released uh, ages ago. So needless to say, at theater chains, uh, thank you, Tom Cruise. We are very excited. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're the only one thinking that. If we're looking at your stock today, last I looked, it was up by about 12%. I, I don't think that's because of Top Gun alone. I think that's because people really do think that this is going to bring people back to the movie theaters. Does it change your strategy at all? Are you going to be looking at this and saying, okay, we can really focus on our bread and buttered or maybe our buttered popcorn here and know that this is a viable option, maybe you don't need to branch out in some of the ways you've talked about branching out. Well, we're going to continue to branch out because we're able to do so and we're good at it. Uh, and so there are various new business ventures coming. But, you know, even though we were diversifying, we were never taking our eye off the ball, our core business. Uh, I've been a big cheerleader for the return of movie theater business. I always thought the conventional wisdom was simply wrong that somehow we were an anachronism. Uh, Americans, and for that matter, people the world over, have enjoyed going to the cinema for over a century. 
Uh, and we've known, just, just look at Spider-Man No Way Home back in December uh, and uh, the Marvel uh, uh, Doctor Strange movie just a, a few weeks ago. When Hollywood makes movies and releases them in theaters that people want to see, they're coming out in huge numbers to enjoy our theaters. So we're, we're excited. Uh, we're confident. We, we know that we're on a, on a path to recovery from 26 months of pandemic, uh, but we're still going to diversify, too. Uh, there's more in us than just movie theaters. You got to do us a favor, though, Adam. Got to do us a favor. Got to do two things for us here in this interview, please, and congrats. More pop, Number, more popcorn. Well, well, no, no, hold on. You're, so your stock right now is up 12% in the pre-market. So and maybe give us maybe a word of encouragement to you, all the, all the owners of your stock out there. Obviously, you know what they've been doing. But more importantly, how many commercials are going to be at the beginning of movies? Is there, like there, there going to be a limit to the number of commercials? Because if your movie starts at 2, I'm showing up at like 2.15. Well, the, to the first of your questions, uh, as you know, retail investors have descended on AMC over the past year, year and a half. We're very grateful to those people. Uh, they own our company. I've said many times I work for them. But in addition to that, uh, they've given us uh, and entrusted us with a lot of money. We ended the first quarter with $1.4 billion of cash. Uh, and that makes us financially strong to to weather this crisis. Uh, as for trailers, we've actually, we do have a limit. Uh, we do not show ads during trailers as some other people do. We limit the number of trailers to six or seven. Uh, what we've seen from people is they like watching these trailers, seeing what's coming in the theaters uh, over the next many months. Uh, having said that, we have also been very clear on our website that a movie actually starts 20 to 25 minutes after the published showtime. Uh, and we don't think that's a secret. We now have reserved seating at most of our theaters so people don't have to rush to get to yeah, their chair. That helps, uh, by the way. We think, we think everybody's happy. Hey, Adam, just looking at the stock, we've been running through a lot of metrics on this, up 282% since the pandemic began on March 11th of 2020. Uh, up almost a little more than 11% this morning. But if you were in this for the one year, it's down by about 38%. I think year to date, it's down pretty sharply too. All of that makes your stock sales at the end of last year look pretty well-timed. I think $42 million you sold. At the time, you said you would not be selling anymore. Is that still the case? Yeah, I'm not selling stock. I, 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 I don't like to admit this on CNBC, but I turned 67 years of age in September and back Last July, I said it was time for some estate planning and that I expected to sell some shares at the end of the year, which I did. Uh, I also said in mid-January that I was done selling and I own almost 800,000 AMC shares. I have another 2.1 million AMC shares uh, that have been granted that will vest over the next uh, two and a half years. Needless to say, uh, I have an enormous incentive to act like a shareholder and think like a shareholder because I am one of the largest AMC shareholders. You pointed out that retail investors have really embraced your stock, have poured into it. I, I think at one point it was something like 80% of your of your shareholders were retail investors. Is that still the case? Do you, how closely do you track it? Uh, we track it. And, you know, generally speaking, those are still the numbers, you know, uh, you know, plus or minus a point or two. But, you know, the numbers that we said publicly were around 80% uh, 
Um, uh, as I said, plus or minus, you know, it changes every day, but around 80%. Uh, but we also said, if you take out the index funds who are forced to own our stock by definition, then retail investors are in the neighborhood of 85 to 90% of our shareholders. Uh, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of people out there, both in the U.S. and overseas, I might add, who believe in movie theaters, who believe in AMC. We're honored to have them uh, as part of the AMC family. You have um, worked with retail investors probably like no other CEO, just in terms of embracing, trying to do special things, reach out to them. What's the response that you get from them these days? Because it, it was probably one thing when the stock was going up. Is it a little tougher in a down market? You're not obviously the only stock that's down this year. It's been a rough year all the way around. But is that a different experience interacting with retail investors when the market well, changes direction? You are right that we have done a lot to communicate uh, with our shareholders. I tweeted just this morning uh, about Top Gun and our record performance this weekend. Uh, you're also right that we do a lot to incentivize them. We have over 665,000 of our shareholders who've joined something called AMC Investor Connect, where we've given them some benefits in our theaters, given them some early screenings uh, as well. Um, uh, are they happier when the share price is going up than going down? I think that's human nature, yes. Uh, but, I, I, but I would still tell you that when I read my Twitter feeds every day, and we get thousands of inbound messages every day. Uh, and, you know, again, if you take it all in total, this is a very enthusiastic, passionate, committed group of stockholders. We're honored that they're with us. Um, and uh, I, I hope they stay with us for a long time to come. I know you thought that this was going to be a great showing for Top Gun Maverick. You, you had tweeted about what a great movie it was. Was there a point in the weekend where you thought, oh my gosh, this is so much better than I had even imagined in terms of the ticket sales coming in? What, what was the moment? Well, I, I, I hate to tell you that we predicted this one early, but I was on the phone with Tom Cruise. Uh, As one does. No, no, not this weekend. Over a year ago, talking about how when Top Gun released in theaters. Uh, actually, it was, uh, yeah, it was over a year ago that uh, this was going to be the thing that started uh, the cavalcade of big movies uh, and big audiences coming into theaters. You nailed it. That we was go it. back this to the movies, the weekend. and we're going to go back to the office, and the people are getting back on planes. I mean, so, it's... Yeah. Our thanks to Adam Aaron, and congrats on a really great weekend and a great kickoff to the summer movie season. We'll see what comes from here. Will be next. Still to come on Squawk Pod, the Biden administration is floating a $10,000 student loan forgiveness plan that's frustrated liberals and Republicans alike. What it is, who it helps, and why some, like Purdue's President Mitch Daniels, are unhappy. It's been very, very clear for decades now that the ready availability of, of free or cheap dollars has pushed up the cost of uh, higher education. This proposal is only going to exacerbate that problem. We're back in a minute. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. This is Squawk Pod. All right, good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I am not Joe or Andrew. I am not. I am Brian Sullivan along with Becky Quick, who you, you do know. Joe and Andrew are both off. As millions of borrowers wait for President Biden's decision about student loan forgiveness, there's still a great deal of concern about those who will still owe being able to repay their student debt. A lot of other questions, too. Our senior personal finance correspondent, Sharon Epperson, joins us right now with more. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Becky. You know, there are more than 40 million Americans that owe a total of $1.7 trillion in student debt. And that balance has tripled since the Great Recession. About 25% of those borrowers are in delinquency or default. Rohit Chopra, who heads the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, told me he worries even more borrowers may be in trouble once the repayments start. We estimate that there will be several million who will be at risk of delinquency and potentially default. So we are really waiting for a decision on loan cancellation because I think that will have a big impact on how the payment restart um, will play out and the overall impact on the economy as well. Now, President Biden campaigned on wiping out $10,000 in college debt per borrower. The average balance is around $30,000 at graduation with a bachelor's degree. And more than 3 million borrowers owe more than $100,000. Chopra is a graduate of Harvard and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. While he would not disclose specifics, he talked to me a bit about his personal experience with student debt. I'm still paying back my student loans, but... I People like me aren't really um, the ones in trouble. Now, Chopra said the CFPB will be watching loan servicers closely to make sure that borrowers are given the information they need to successfully transition from this pause to repayment. Becky? Hey, Sharon, what should borrowers do as they wait for news on student loan forgiveness? Well, the first thing they need to do is contact their servicer, make sure that the information that the servicer has is up to date. And for many, they may have had a servicer change during this pause. So you want to make sure that all of that information is correct. Also, you know, start saving a lot because this may not wipe out all of your student loan balance. So you want to make sure that you have some of that um, saved up already to start those repayments. And then don't worry so much about a tax burden because now under the CARES Act, there has been legislation that tax that student loan forgiveness is no longer taxable. So you don't have to worry about it getting a tax hit if, in fact, 
part of your loan or your loan is forgiven, you will not have to pay taxes on that money. Sharon, thanks. For more on student loan forgiveness, let's bring in Mitch Daniels. He's the former OMB director and former governor of Indiana, who's now the president at Purdue University, where he has frozen tuition and most fees at the 2012 to 2013 school year levels. And by the way, of their 2021 graduating class, 60% graduated debt-free. That is 45% above the national average. And Mitch, thank you for joining us today. We talked briefly about this the last time you were on, just how you thought this was a pretty terrible policy idea. Um, what do you think now that it's being floated that this is going to happen? $10,000 get wiped off for anybody who's making less than $150,000 a year or $300,000 if you're married and for filing jointly. Becky, uh this, this dead fish isn't smelling any better the older it gets. I th it, one reason this has taken so long for the administration to say something about it is they know it's fatally flawed. You know, this is, this is another uh, very regressive suggestion. Uh, they're going to give money to people making uh, three times the national median average. In, in household case, four and a half times. 71% of the money goes to the top uh, half of the income distribution. Um, this, uh, there's just no way to present this that it isn't a, uh, a giveaway to people who, who don't need it and who uh, you know, freely took these obligations on. Of course, I believe that in e an equal uh, unfairness is to all those millions of people who paid their debts back. 99% of our graduates at Purdue do pay them back. Not sure what I'm supposed to tell them when other people are let off the hook. Um, so I think that uh, uh, among its other defects, uh, the, un the gross unfairness of this is the worst. Here we were supposed to be concerned about in income inequality and so forth, and uh, uh, this heads just the wrong direction. You know, the, the other point on all of this is the loan forgiveness, the, the loans don't go to, to, to debt heaven. That, it doesn't mean that they just disappear. It means that taxpayers are going to be on the hook to pay for these things too. So that means if you already paid off your debts, you now get the privilege of paying off somebody else's debt too. And for the idea for the president to do this without going through Congress, is a little baffling too. Congress is supposed to have the power of the purse. How does this work? I call it baffling. I call it flagrantly illegal. You know, Speaker Pelosi said the same exact thing just months ago. And Congress, uh, if they want to do this, Congress is uh, the is the place that it should happen. Uh, they do have the power of the purse strings, unquestionably, under the Constitution. We're talking about in this, even in this latest case, uh, between two and three hundred billion dollars. Uh, on top of the national debt we've already accumulated um, at the stroke of a presidential pen. It's, it's wrong. It's wrong fiscally. And please note the, the irony that it's these same young people on whom we are already going to dump unimaginable amounts of, of debt in their uh, older years uh, who will now pick up the tab uh, for what they uh, were told was a gift to them now. Yeah, Mitch, it's Brian Sullivan. Listen, on a rainy uh, fall day last year, I went and actually dug into the stats. Um, there, You can find them online. They're a little bit muddled. You open up an Excel and you go through it. And it was shocking to me what I saw in many ways because you always hear, and Sharon said it, but you always hear politicians, they'll say, well, the average is 37,000. That is accurate, but that's an average. And it's actually a terrible measure of what's really going on, correct? Because what I found shocked me. I found that about 6 to 7% of borrowers owed about half the money. Many of them owed three and four hundred thousand dollars each. The only way to get that kind, which skews the average to thirty-seven thousand, right? So you got somebody owes four hundred, and eight people that owe twenty, and you know your average is going to be about fifty thousand dollars. 
the only way to get that kind of debt would be to go to med school, would be to go to law school. So how do we, if we did this, I know you don't want to, how do we filter out those people that have a lot of debt because they make a lot of money because they're now the neurosurgeons that we need? Of course, I don't think anybody should be filtered out if they took the obligation on. They shouldn't expect to foist it off on their fellow citizens uh, later on. But you're right about those numbers, Brian. But just, you know, just think about it the, from the other end. Somebody making up to $300,000 in their household probably could find a way to pay back 10. And uh, so, you know, this there are better ways to get at this. And there always have been. One is income-based repayment. There are government programs on the books to do that. Like other things the federal government tries to do, they have stumbled all over themselves from an operational standpoint. But the mechanism is there for people to pay back a manageable percentage of whatever their income is. At least they're paying something, not being let off scot-free. And then there's, uh, you know, a, a favorite of mine for a long time. Put universities like ours on the hook for some of this. And if our, if our graduates don't have either the income-producing uh, capacity or the personal responsibility to pay back what they borrowed, then we should have to pay back some of it at least and uh, protect the taxpayers in that way. It means your education, and not not you, Mitch, but it means the education wasn't worth it. I mean, that's it. And 40% of this money is owed by for-profit college attendees. And we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but let's be clear, that is an entire industry unto itself. And let's just say that some of the claims probably made over the last 20 years have been dubious at best. Well, I'll give you a claim that is under question now. My, my friends in higher education love to point out, and, and generally I agree with them, that a college degree is a great asset. It, it will increase your income capacity, they always say, by maybe a million dollars over your lifetime. Well, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't claim that and then say that the people who acquired that valuable credential uh, simply are you know, helpless to pay back what they borrowed. Hey, Mitch, let me, let me just ask. I mean, it's got to be frustrating to you because you've kept costs under control at Purdue, tried to fight that, that, that inflation in higher education that has for a long time outpaced any inflation we see anywhere else. To see other schools not do that and, like you said, not be on the hook for any of this stuff. That Having skin in the game matters, not just for people who are paying back their loans, but also for the colleges that are continuing to raise, to raise tuition prices been very, very clear for decades now that the ready availability of, of free or cheap dollars has pushed up the cost of uh, higher education. And in a very causal and direct way, the, the more uh, the, the consumer, in this case, the student and the family, is, is uh, insulated against the true cost, the, the less they press back as you would in other uh, parts of the marketplace. And so you know, this, this proposal is only going to exacerbate that problem. People in the future, young, will look back and say, maybe I'll be able to get a, uh, off the hook, too. I'll borrow more than uh, I might have, and therefore I'll uh, attend a college that costs more than it should have. And, and let me just ask, I mean, if, if this was a trial balloon, the administration trying to see what people thought of this, um, they haven't seemed to make too many people happy at all. The, the people on the right are unhappy about this. People on the left who were advocating for some sort of relief have been unhappy, too, saying that it doesn't go far enough. The NAACP is furious about it. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has not been happy with it. They don't think it does enough anyway. What, what was their goal with this, if, if you're going to irritate everybody on all sides of this? I'm reluctant to get into trying to read their political mind. I said earlier the reason this has taken such interminable time is it has these fatal flaws. And I think part of it is they... 
you know, the politics are not, of it are not that clear for everybody who's uh, uh, maybe about to be handed, uh, you know, free money here in forgiveness. There are mil- there are others who paid it all back and would rightly feel that they had been uh, wronged in the process. So uh, I do think that, uh, again, there are better ways to approach this. I don't think they're ever going to uh, conjure up uh, uh, redeeming qualities that will justify the injustice, the unfairness of of what's been uh, suggested here. And, and you know, there, we, there's also a lot of people go to cheaper colleges because they can't afford, they don't want to borrow money. So there's actually a lot of people lose a, a quote better education by choosing something that their parents can afford. Well, it kind of throws things in turmoil, too. People who have these loans are wondering what's happening. Uh, Mitch, before you go very quickly, what do you think ultimately happens? Do you think this this $10,000 forgiveness goes through? I suppose so. They seem quite committed to do it. But uh, I, uh, I, I still hope that their uh, hesitation wins out and we look for an alternative way uh, along the lines maybe of those I suggested. Mitch Daniels, thank you, sir. Uh, again, the, the president of Purdue University, it's great to see you, sir. I mean, what about something like where if you, we have a shortage of teachers now. You hear about all these teachers have left because of COVID lockdowns. If you do a career like teaching, which we need teachers, we need to pay our teachers more, you get debt relief if you go into certain occupations. Sure, and there, there have been programs that have been set up to do that to this point. Mitch Daniels said that he would like to see things that either have colleges have some skin in the game or for people who are making below certain levels, you cut down the amount of their loan payments. So it's something that they can manage with. But for somebody tied to income levels, it should be tied to some sort of way to ensure that you are helping people who. Yeah, who a a lawyer in a lawyer in Houston making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that has thirty thousand in student loan debt, but has no. Why should he get ten thousand wiped off? Good question. He'll just take a, maybe he should, he'll just take a vacation with it. I paid off my law school loans two months ago, 19 years <laughs> later. I got the little email and had a little uh, GIF. I had loans too. With I like them confetti off a while ago, going, yes. yeah. You know, yay. yay. Thanks, Navient, for the GIF. That's the podcast for today, our last podcast for May. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here in June. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/slash activecash.